back of the hymn book, page 912, 912. Our subject for this morning from Psalm 6 is when the elect lose the awareness of grace. I'm going to read um, articles 4 through 6, page 912. The danger of true believers falling into serious sins, article 4. Although that power of God strengthening and preserving true believers in grace is more than a match for the flesh, Yet those converted are not always so activated and motivated by God that in certain specific actions they cannot, by their own fault, depart from the leading of grace, be led astray by the desires of the flesh, and give in to them. For this reason they must constantly watch and pray that they may not be led into temptations. When they fail to do this, not only can they be carried away by the flesh, the world, and Satan into sins, even serious and outrageous ones, but also by God's just permission, they sometimes are so carried away. Witness the sad cases described in Scripture of David, Peter, and other saints falling into sins. Article 5. By such monstrous sins, however, they greatly offend God, deserve the sentence of death, Grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound the conscience, and sometimes lose the awareness of grace for a time until, after they have returned to the, to the way of genuine repentance, God's fatherly face again shines upon them. Article 6. For God, who is rich in mercy, According to his unchangeable purpose of election, does not take his Holy Spirit from his own completely, even when they fall grievously. Neither does he let them fall down so far that they forfeit the grace of adoption and the state of justification, or commit the sin which leads to death, a sin against the Holy Spirit, and plunge themselves, entirely forsaken by him, into eternal ruin. Please open your Bibles now to Psalm 6. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to that psalm as we make our way through these verses. Psalm 6, to the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim, I drench my couch with my tears, my eye wastes away because of grief, it grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication, the Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled, let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. So far, the reading of God's holy word. 
Don't you love the bright, hope-filled future that is depicted in the book of Revelation? In chapter 21, the apostle John was able to see a new heaven and a new earth. He saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And then he heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more crying. The Apostle John was able to see a day when all sorrow will evaporate. No more tears, sadness, or crying in the kingdom of God. The children of God will dwell with their Savior. God himself will be with them and be their God. Right now, we can hardly fathom a time of perfect peace and contentment. We are surrounded by hurting people. There are those who are hurting because of broken friendships, marriages, family relationships, sicknesses, disabilities, deaths, you name it. We're living in a damaged world, and therefore we suffer pain. We weep, we mourn, we grieve. And congregation, this grief is not only among those who have no regard for the Lord. There are also times when the children of God experience intense pain, discouragement, despair, and depression. Sometimes we even experience it with great intensity because we know that our suffering is frequently a direct result of our own sin. And if not directly the result of our own sin, it's, it's still the result of sin in general. The children of God can fall into seasons of deep sorrow because we know that sin is offensive to a holy God, repulsive in His sight. Haven't you ever experienced it, brothers and sisters, when you became overwhelmed by the wickedness of your own heart? Have there not been times in your life when you felt crushed by the weight of your own guilt and you cried like a little child? Yes, children, grown-ups can cry too. Not so much because of pain in their body, but sometimes because of the pain of knowing that they have grieved their Lord. Yes, even the strongest, seemingly unemotional individual can crumple under the pressing weight of his sin. King David was such an individual. If you're familiar with the life of David, you know that he was no weakling. Already as a young boy, when he was tending his father's sheep, he had the courage to kill both a lion and a bear. He took it by the beard and, and struck it and killed it. Then also as a youth, he had the courage to challenge Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. With just a sling and five stones, he went after the giant and killed him. And then with Goliath's own sword, he cut off his head. David became the great and rugged warrior. He slew many Philistines and eventually was made king of the nation. He was a prosperous, ambitious, successful, mighty monarch, certainly no cowardly weakling. And yet there were times in the life of this great man of God when he buckled under the weight of his own sin and cried like a helpless child. He was a mighty man who was able to bear more than most men. 
But there was one thing that troubled him more than anything else, namely the burden of his sin and the knowledge that by his sin he had grieved the Lord and provoked divine wrath. As he pondered his iniquity, his tears streamed down his face. Psalm 6 is a psalm of David in which he exposed the agony of his soul. It reveals one of those dark moments in the life of this otherwise courageous, fearless king. The psalm reminds us that even the elect of God, those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, can sometimes lose the sense of God's favor and the awareness of grace for a time. The elect can pass through what some of the old writers refer to as the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul. Psalm 6 is the first of what has been called the penitential psalms. Penitential psalms are those in which there is a confession of sin and pleading with God for His mercy and grace. Some of the more familiar penitential psalms are Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is especially well known because of its historical link with his, David's adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Following his confrontation with uh, Nathan the prophet, David poured out his heart to God in repentance and sorrow for sin. In Psalm 6, we do not know the historical setting and the sin over which he grieved. It is left unspecified. But David shows us how he was torn apart by his sin. He even experienced physical ailments. He fell into such deep depression that his whole body reacted to it. But in this psalm, David shows us not only the depths of misery into which he was plunged, but also the deliverance he experienced by the mercy of God. The Lord did not leave him in the slough of despond or forsake him in the valley of sorrow. He did not abandon him to grope around in the darkness of despair, entirely devoid of the sense of God's favor. David, through much agony of soul, was finally able to come to the point where he could say with confidence, the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. He was made aware of God's fatherly face shining upon him once again. As we consider this psalm, we want to do so in two parts. First, we see his deep distress in verses 1 through 7. Second, we see his restoration and mercy in verses 8 through 10. We begin with his deep distress. His deep distress. The psalm begins with an acknowledgement of the disapproval of God. David knew that he had provoked divine wrath. Echoing the teaching of Scripture, Article 4, fifth head of the canon says that while genuine believers cannot fall away from grace, they can, by their own fault, depart from the leading of grace, be led astray by the desires of the flesh, and give in to them. Article 4 goes on to remind us that we must constantly watch and pray that we may not be led into temptations. 
When we fail to watch and pray, we can be carried away by the, the flesh, the world, and Satan into sins, even serious and outrageous ones. David knew what that was like. So what did he say to the Lord here in verse 1? Well, let's have a look. Go with me in your Bible to verse 1. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me, discipline me in your hot displeasure. Whether David was suffering on account of some specific sin in his life, or whether it was depression by a series of events, we're not told. Whatever the case, his anguish was real. He knew that he was worthy of the hot displeasure, wrath of God. His prayer was that God would not deal with him in the manner that he deserved or repay him according to his deeds. David knew that he deserved rebuke and needed to be chastened, disciplined. Rebuke and chastening should be welcomed by the Christian for it is a sign of the love of God. Scripture says those whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he chastises every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, says the Bible, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? But if you are not disciplined, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. In an age like ours, in an age like ours in which discipline has become a nasty word, and something spanking in the home should be a criminal offense, these words may sound rather strange. How can discipline be a positive thing? And yet that is the clear testimony of Scripture. It is a blessing to receive the chastening of the Lord. Why? Because through it the peaceable fruits of righteousness become manifest in our lives. God chastens His people to bring them back into harmony with His will to keep them from perishing. As a father lovingly disciplines his child to keep him from hurting himself and to turn him from folly's way. So the Lord chastens his children to keep them from doing what would lead them to hell. No, congregation, it is not the Lord's rebuke or the Lord's chastening that David is concerned about. Look again at verse 1. What is his plea before the throne of God? O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or chasten me in your wrath or in your hot displeasure. It is not necessarily the rebuke or discipline that troubles him. It is the rebuke and discipline that arises out of wrath. David knew that correction was needed, but he was afraid of correction that would be administered in anger. The prophet Jeremiah shared David's concern when he said, O oh Lord, correct me, but not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing, Jeremiah 10, 24. Chastening, yes. Correction, yes. Rebuke, yes. But O oh Lord, not in your anger, lest I be consumed. 
Congregation, both David and Jeremiah understood something that many people today don't seem to understand. The popular view of God in our day is that he is what? Love. Love. If you randomly asked professing Christians what they could tell you about the character of God, perhaps one of the first things you would hear is, God is love. Yes, he is. But do professing Christians sometimes shy away from the fact that God is also angered by sin? Do we shy away from the notion of his hot displeasure? The writers of the canon certainly did not skirt around such things. Article 5 says that by our monstrous sins, we greatly offend God, deserve the sentence of death, grieve the Holy Spirit, suspend the exercise of faith, severely wound the conscience, and sometimes lose the awareness of grace for a time. Brothers and sisters, how seriously do you view sin in your life? Do you take for granted that God is obligated to overlook your sin? David certainly didn't. In deep sorrow and regret, he cried out, Oh Lord, don't give me what I deserve. Go with me to verse 2. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. David did not appeal to God on the basis of his own righteousness, but on the basis of what? God's mercy. Have mercy on me, O Lord. He didn't say, Lord, I'll try to be better in the future. I'll try to clean up my act. Lord, I promise not to do this again. None of that. Have mercy. Have mercy. David understood something about the basic nature of the gospel. The only way that he, a vile sinner, could be received by a pure and holy God was by means of mercy and grace. That was his greatest need. He knew that on his own he could never climb the ladder to God. In verse 2, he confessed that he was weak or faint, or languishing. David, weak? Think about that. The mighty monarch before whom none of the nations could stand, by whom Goliath was slain, this man confessed, Lord, I am weak. Then he added in verse 2, O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled His spiritual struggles had taken a toll on his body. He felt the strain in his very bones. He had experienced a season of bodily fatigue and utter weariness. His sin affected him to the point of physical exhaustion. In addition, the intensity of his suffering is further expressed in the words of verse 3. My soul also is greatly troubled. David had an accurate comprehension of what a dreadful thing sin is. It filled him with anxious turmoil under the heavy hand of God. Brothers and sisters, have you ever really contemplated what a dreadful thing sin is? 
It has marred everything that God made to be beautiful. Were it not for the reality of sin, we would have no trouble living in daily joyful fellowship with God. It is our sin that gets in the way. And then, instead of joy, there is sorrow, restlessness, and anguish of soul. David was plunged into that deep anguish of soul. His body ached, his bones were in agony, and he felt inwardly crushed. At the end of verse 3, he called out in misery, O Lord, how long? How long must I suffer? How long must I endure this anguish of soul before you come for my deliverance? Incidentally, in one of my commentaries on the Psalms, it was noted that this was Calvin's favorite exclamation. Oh Lord, how long? Calvin was often plagued by various ailments. And together with these physical ailments, there were many demands placed upon him by the ch from the churches. He had to address sinful attitudes and actions. His life was often in danger, and his endless labors were not always appreciated. Again and again, in the midst of his countless responsibilities, difficulties, and sins, the prayer arose from his lips, O oh Lord, how long? As we go on to verse 4, we see that David sank so low that he came to a point where he lost the sense of the presence of God. He lost the sense of the presence of God. In his depressed state, he felt as though God had withdrawn himself from him, hidden himself. Look with me to verse 4. Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. You see that word return there. The word return at the beginning of verse 4 indicates that David sensed that God was absent. His sin had put up a wall between him and his Lord. That wall seemed to be impenetrable. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever experienced those occasions where God seems to be very distant, as though His loving presence had been withdrawn? Your prayers seem to bounce back to you. You feel empty and alone, forsaken and abandoned. Have you ever felt as though there was a, an impenetrable wall between you and your Lord? I suspect most Christians have had that experience to one degree or another. Some of the greatest people in church history had moments when they were deeply troubled by these things. Martin Luther had times of depression to the point where he sometimes even doubted his salvation. He had moments when he also questioned the rightness and the value of the Reformation. Charles Haddon Spurgeon who has been called one of God's choicest gifts to his church in Britain and indeed throughout the world, a powerful preacher, greatly used of the Lord, was also affected by times of unbearable depression and deep distress. Brothers and sisters, what do you do when you fall into such a state? You become bitter, angry. You deserve better treatment. What do you do? What did David do? David continued to appeal to the mercy of God. 
In verse 2, he said, have mercy on me. And again, in verse 4, he said, oh, save me for your mercy's sake. David had some understanding of the character of God. On the one hand, he knew that God was angered by sin. On the other hand, he understood the mercy of God, his covenant mercy. It's Psalm 86, verse 5, David wrote, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon him. You, O Lord, are abundant in mercy. Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, abounding in mercy. Because David also understood this aspect of the character of God, he continued in his appeal, save me, not for the sake of my goodness and righteousness, but save me for your mercy's sake. Then in verse 5, he said, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? One old commentator wrote of this verse, churchyards are silent places. The vaults of the sepulcher echo not with songs. Damp earth covers dumb mouths. Brothers and sisters, in verse 5, David was not doubting the fact that there's life after death. He clearly speaks of life after death in other psalms. Read Psalm 16, for example. He knew that there was life beyond the grave. What he was saying is this, Lord, if I die as the result of this agony of body and soul, then my opportunity of praising you in this life will be over. And Lord, if I die in my sin, if I die without your mercy, then songs of thanksgiving shall never more come forth from my lips. If I die without your mercy, then I shall be eternally separated from your loving presence. Oh Lord, please don't let this happen. If David died without the grace of God, he would know only eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. In hell, in hell, there is no loving, worshipful remembrance of God, no joyful thanksgiving, no voices of praise, no psalms of gratitude. As David reflected upon these things, and as he considered the weightiness of his sin, he was overcome with sorrow. His nights were spent in restless turmoil. Although he was utterly exhausted from his physical ailments and his troubled soul, yet he was unable to sleep. Look please to verse 6. Verse 6. I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim, I flood my bed, I drench my couch with my tears. Congregation, this was a man in great distress. He was not troubled because of trivial matters. He was troubled by the feeling of divine displeasure. A husband whose wife has abandoned him can go through a period of indescribable grief. His days are aimless and his nights sleepless. 
His bed may be drenched with tears because the joy, love, and treasure of his life has forsaken him. If you've ever known a man who's been forsaken by his wife, then you know how miserable and hurt such a one can be, even if he knows he deserved it. Well, brothers and sisters, what David experienced was far worse than a separation from one's wife or husband. He felt that God himself had departed. During those long hours of the night, he sobbed like a child until his bed was drenched. He knew that he deserved it. It was his sin that separated him from God. It was his own fault. He knew it. The king of Israel, the strength of the nation, lay helplessly upon a couch drenched with tears. In verse 7, he continued his lament. Go there, verse 7. He continued his lament by saying, My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old or weak because of all my enemies. As an old man's eyes grow dim because of age, so says David, my eyes have become red, weak, and dim through weeping. His vision became blurred and his eyes lost their shine. At the end of verse 7, he mentions his enemies. Because of all my enemies. It's as though his enemies were rejoicing in his afflictions. They had heard of his sad condition and you can just imagine them saying, ha, serves him right. I hope he withers away in his depression. I hope he dies from his ailments. Of course, his enemies had no idea that this was not just any sickness. This was sickness of the soul. His enemies, being indifferent to sin, did not realize what he was going through. But neither did they care. It suited them just fine seeing David in misery. They spoke of him with scorn and contempt. This congregation was the king of Israel, the anointed of the Lord, yet he was a man in deep distress, a man who had lost the sense of the presence of God. But then, brothers and sisters, when we come to verses 8 through 10, we notice a radical change in the tone of this psalm. We pass from his deep distress, point number one, to his restoration and recovery, point number two. His restoration and recovery. In verse eight, David was lifted out of his paralyzing and debilitating depression. He's a changed man. What's happened? What has taken place? What's the cause of this drastic change of mood and attitude? God has heard his prayer. And David has found peace, peace with God. Look with me to verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. Yahweh has heard the voice of my weeping. All you workers of iniquity can stop your mocking and depart from me, for God has heard me. Go to verse 9. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. The radical transition in this psalm is because the Holy Spirit filled him with a certainty that his prayer was heard. 
He was filled with the assurance of the mercy of God. The Lord would not rebuke him in anger or discipline him in his hot displeasure. David found relief for his soul. He had provoked divine wrath by his sin, but he came to experience that the Lord is good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all who call upon him. In the words of Article 5, God's fatherly face shone upon him once again. In his turmoil, David had lost the sense of the presence of God. God seemed distant as though he had withdrawn himself. But congregation, in the midst of that season of darkness, God had not left him at all. It seemed as though he had. It felt as though he had. But God had not left his grieving, wounded child. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. Yes, he allowed him to feel forsaken for a time, not to crush him, but that he might lift him to new levels of spiritual joy and maturity. Congregation, this is your God. He says to each and every one of his children, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am your God in life, and I will be your God in death. Even in the darkest moments of your life, when your bed is drenched with tears, I will not forsake you. A broken and a contrite heart God will never despise. He who comes to the throne of grace, pleading his mercies in humble repentance, such the Lord will not despise. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter whether you're the vilest of sinners. He who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you acknowledge your weakness, and confess your inability, if you admit your unworthiness and say, have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O save me for your mercy's sake. Such will never be abandoned to the eternal horrors of hell. You may feel troubled and unworthy. You may feel as though you have no right to the presence of God. You may feel as though you've blown it again. And that there is no hope for you. My dear friends, look to the mercy of God. The Lord will most certainly hear the voice of your weeping. He will hear your supplication. God may allow you to pass through a season of severe and seemingly unbearable discouragement. He does so not to crush you, but to lift you to new heights of spiritual joy, maturity, service, and commitment. Scripture says weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. God does not leave a grieving child in the pit and say, serves you right. You deserve what you got. The Lord is not like that. Yes, he hates sin and despises rebellion, but the repentant sinner will never be left to wallow in his filth. God will answer. God will save. God will show mercy. 
Article 6 of the Canons offers these comforting words. Listen. For God, who is rich in mercy, according to His unchangeable purpose of election, does not take His Holy Spirit from His own completely, even when they fall grievously. Neither does He let them fall down so far that they forfeit the grace of adoption and the state of justification. God does not forsake His children and allow them to commit the sin which leads to death, the sin against the Holy Spirit, and plunge themselves into eternal ruin. No, He takes them out of the pit. He hears their cries for deliverance and the voice of their weeping. By the grace of God, David was raised up and restored. And he came to see, as we read in verse 10, have a look there, verse 10, that all his enemies will be ashamed and greatly troubled. They will turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Those who mocked him in his anguish would one day themselves, if they did not repent and believe, they would experience the anguish of the absence of the favor of God, not a temporary anguish, not a season of depression, but eternal anguish, eternal weeping, eternal disgrace. David's weeping endured for a season. But the weeping of the unrepentant who have not sought the mercy of the Lord will endure forever. Forever he will cry, Lord, how long? Lord, how long? But there will be no answer. There will be eternal silence. Never a word of deliverance from the Lord. Never, never. Brothers and sisters, how urgent it is for sinners to repent while there is still time. Better to weep over your sin now than to weep eternally. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Does your sin trouble and grieve you? Has it brought you to your knees before the cross? If it has, then you can be assured that the Lord will not forsake you. How do we know that? How can we be certain? Because, brothers and sisters, there is one. There is one who not only experienced a feeling of the abandonment of God, but he actually experienced that true abandonment of the love of God for your sake. Our Lord Jesus did not only feel forsaken, he was forsaken. He himself received in his very person the anger and hot displeasure of the Lord. He became subject to divine wrath. He was rejected and despised so that he cried out in anguish, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The anger and hot displeasure of God were poured out upon the Son as He hung from the cross. He endured anguish of soul as no man ever did, sorrow and grief as no other. 
As he hung from the cross in those awful hours, the loving face of his father was turned away. He cried out in anguish, but there was only terrible silence. His father did not answer. Congregation, Jesus was forsaken so that you will not be forsaken. He was abandoned so that you might never be abandoned. Cast out so that you may never be cast out. That in the darkest hours of your life, you are to lift your swollen eyes to Jesus Christ. Whatever pit you may be in, Christ was deeper. Whatever darkness you encounter, Christ was in greater darkness. Whatever distress falls upon you, Christ was in deeper distress. Whatever tears you shed, Christ were more bitter. Whatever agony you endure, Christ endured greater. And why? Why? David's suffering was on account of his own sin, but Christ was without sin, without blemish. Why then the terrible agony? So that the Lord may hear the voice of your weeping. So that the Lord will not turn a deaf ear to your cry so that he will not turn his loving face from you. Brothers and sisters, is your sin distressing you? Bring it to Christ. Is it depressing you? Bring it to Jesus. He said, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. And come to him, come with your burdens and tears. He will hear the voice of your weeping and restore you to the awareness of his presence, grace, and love. He will never forsake his elect, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And then one day, he will bring you to that new Jerusalem where he will wipe every tear from your eyes. Blessed are they who mourn now, for they shall be comforted. Let us pray. Lord, we confess before you this morning that we do not always weep as we should because we are not always sensitive to our sin as we ought to be. Our minds and hearts are not always in tune with your mind and heart. And sometimes, Lord, we live in such a way we don't even realize that we are offending you. We ask your forgiveness, show us our sin, that we may repent. Cause us to mourn now so that we will be comforted. Lord, we think of what your word teaches about those who will mourn forever, utterly forsaken. 
will cry, how long, O Lord, and never receive an answer. Lord, we pray that along with David, we may weep now. And then by the mercy that we experience in Christ Jesus, because he was forsaken, fill us with the joy that we will never be forsaken, never cast out, never utterly abandoned by you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for standing in our place. We can't even begin to comprehend what you endured for us. We thank you, we praise you, we worship you. Lord, if there is any here this morning struggling, wrestling, if there's anybody here whose bed is wet with tears, cause them to see the great mercy that you have given us in Christ Jesus, your beloved Son. And Lord, may we rise from that to sing songs of gratitude, songs of redemption. We pray receive our praises in the conclusion of this service as we sing this psalm together. Lord, may, may our hearts be driven to Jesus Christ in whom is abundant mercy. In his name we pray, amen.